You are listening to the 3CR podcast of Encyclopedia, and Psychedelia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2pm. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. This is Encyclopedia on 3CR. Thank you to Freedom of Species, who'll be back this time next week at 1pm. If you miss something from Freedom of Species or you want to hear more, head to the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au, and follow the links on the Freedom of Species program page. If you're interested, you can subscribe to their podcast, find their website and connect with them on social media. The same can be done for Encyclopedia, us or any other program that you hear on 3CR. My name's Chloe and Encyclopedia is a show focused on a broad range of drug issues. We neither condone nor condemn people for their choices. You will hear real stories today from real people about real things that have happened to them. This afternoon's show comes with a language and a content warning and we'll be talking viscerally about drug use, using some strong language at times and talking about addiction and sex work. If you'd like some support on similar issues that have happened in your own life, please contact DirectLine, which is a free call on one 888 236 and if you're concerned at all about a loved one's or a family member's drug use please contact family drug support on 1300 368 186 the song also that sits behind the radio segment that we're going to play today um, is called to the point by a melbourne-based dj his name's kodiak kid if you've ever been to the lounge or to brown alley it's likely that you might have seen him dj the segment also, or the song, is produced by somebody called Monkey Mark, who's also sort of an Australian well-known hip-hop producer, so look out for him. Just before we get started today, um, we've got a couple of little disclosures to make about the guests that we're about to hear from. Both of them are seasoned, you know, they've got a lot of opinions about the systems and the programs that have worked for them in terms of overcoming their sort of challenges and circumstances in relation to drug use. However, they do not and are not representing the various organisations that they talk about, particularly in relation to Narcotics Anonymous and the recent proposal for youth mandatory rehab. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Militantly, never you fear! Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. So basically, I think we wanted to present a few more perhaps unusual stories as part of the radio show today because 
we know that it's broad, we know that it's diverse, but the thing is, is that, you know, sobriety and more punitive approaches, like, you know, they mightn't have necessarily helped me to recover from various issues with substances in my life and stuff like that. But the thing is, is that they do help some people. So we decided to sort of shake things up a bit today and we've got um, a couple of special guests um, that will be talking a little bit about them and we've got someone, you're going to hear the voice of Frank on the radio, who is a Narcotics Anonymous member and a group facilitator who sort of credits a lot of their ability to regaining control um, over things, um, to engaging in the 12-step program. Um, a pseudonym's been applied um, to protect their true identity. And we've also, we've got Sarah coming in too, who we've heard before on the radio show, but she's going to talk a little bit more about the mandatory rehab for young people um, that she's been supporting more recently. Um, so welcome both. Maybe we could start with Frank, given that you're the greenie for the radio show today. Yep. So what made you attend NA? I guess... Okay, so my my drug use kind of started. Um, well, look, I mean, I was always I was always going to go in that direction. My drug use actually started the very first time I got high. I was probably about five years old, and I remember I used to go and hide in my bedroom and huff on Ventolin, which used to have CFCs in it, like back back in you know the eighties or when it was beautiful, <laughs> and um, like it just made me completely wasted. I was really really into it, and. Um, I think that that was probably one of the indicators that I was going to go down the road of addiction. Um, but I think it really took off when I was about 14 and I started using cannabis. And, like, my... I guess my using um, followed a fairly common trajectory, particularly for, you know, white middle-class people in Melbourne. Like, I started using cannabis, and then by the time I was about 16, I... Um, you know, I was I was a daily user of cannabis and I was using kind of, you know, pills and speed on the weekend and, you know, doing a bit of acid and drinking alcohol and just sort of generally partying and being fabulous. And um, that was good. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, that sort of continued. And then I was partying a lot through my early 20s. Um, they were very fun days. Really good times. Yeah, like, actually like, stunning. Amazing. More people yeah. need to respect <laughs> those times. Yeah. Like, it was very good. Definitely. Um but then uh, probably when I was about 19 or 20, I had um, some fairly hectic trauma happen and things just kind of got a lot worse for me. And um, I guess the way that I used changed. Like it stopped being about having fun and partying and started just being about blowing me out as aggressively as I possibly could. And I had um, a pretty wicked case of PTSD. And when I discovered heroin, I really... I, I kind of think that it saved my life in some ways because um, in terms of the way that my mental state was back then, if I didn't have that... If I didn't have that, I, I potentially would have killed myself. Like, I was really, really not travelling very well. And... Um, heroin kind of allowed me to be able to walk down the street like it allowed me to be able to kind of function like breathe like I just I felt like I couldn't breathe and when I was when I was on heroin I felt like I could breathe again you know 
And um, and so many people say that as well, though. Like when you're talking about, you know, drug use as an alternative to suicide. Like, yeah. You know, that's quite common in people's narratives around, you know, why. Like why they fucking loved using drugs so much. Like, yeah. And probably love is the wrong word to use right there. But still, like, yeah. you know, like that's a thing. Well, and it was weird, you know, because like... One, it was one of my friends that introduced me to it. Like, she had had a suicide attempt and, um, you know, she'd had chronic pain. There was a whole bunch of things that were going on for her and she got really into heroin and she was like, let's just do a bunch of heroin. And I was like, fine, woohoo, like, great, like, whatever. Because I kind of didn't care. I was using a lot of ice, I was drinking, we were using a lot of pills, we were going out and partying a lot. But then I kind of discovered heroin and it just... Like, I really felt like I'd found it, you know? Like, I was like, this is stunning. Um... But uh, I couldn't afford it because you can't, like, when you've got a a serious heroin habit, like, I just couldn't afford it. And um, I ended up getting into the sex industry and I was working as a sex worker. And, I mean, that was kind of fine. It meant that I could afford my habit. It was sort of, it was good. Like, it was fine. I did a bit of in-house work. I worked on the street probably more. I was doing a bit of trans work. Like, it was was kind of working for me. But um, ultimately, it kind of got to this point where it was it wasn't supportive, it was unsustainable. Like I remember I was, <laughs> I was on the street. It was the middle of winter. It was like three o'clock in the morning and I'm walking up and down in St Kilda in this like little, you know, tank top trying to be hot, wearing like, you know, in skinny jeans and like sweating like a horse and so sick and like dripping snot out of my <laughs> nose and like shivering and carry on walking up and down the street. Like, Hey sugar, you looking for a date? Like trying to like, like keep the scabs on my face. I didn't just bleed everywhere. Like it was really gross and um, kind of thinking I've got like, it doesn't like I will, I will hook anyone who comes along right now. And, you know, like I just, I didn't, there wasn't, it wasn't empowered. It wasn't, you know, um, it wasn't owning my sexuality. There was nothing empowered about it. It was just being completely a slave to my addiction. And <clears throat> the person that came along was really gross. It was a really, really bad night. The whole thing was just bad. And I um, I kind of came out of that situation and was like, I, I can't do this and I need help. Um, so I went to the doctor because I was like, I'm fucked. I just, I can't stop using. I'm in this constant cycle of just going into withdrawal, needing to earn, needing to score, needing to earn, needing to score. It was just this like living against the clock mm. all the time. And I didn't know how to get out of it. And I didn't really want to, like, it didn't occur to me that you could stop using. Like, I I didn't want to stop using. I just kind of wanted to stop being sick all the time. Um, And I sort of wanted to stop working in the sex industry. Like, I sort of had had this really bad experience. And I was like, i got to stop doing this. It's just doing my head in. I was already traumatized. It was re-traumatizing me. I realized that it was was really unhelpful for me. And so I went and I got on methadone. And... um, that was the that was the help that the that the doctor gave me was methadone and you know in some ways that was really great like it it did get get me off the street it got me out of that cycle of just using and using and using and using um and it meant that i was able to go back and reskill so i ended up getting a qualification and you know that got me into a career and that sort of worked for me for a little while but um it wasn't really very long. It was only like I was still using on top of being on methadone. Um, it didn't mean that I was using constantly, but I still used a fair bit, a couple of times a week. And then um, after a little while, I eventually I got into ice and 
in the last sort of four or five years of my really active addiction, I was working night shifts at this facility and I was just in this again in this cycle of just like half the week I was just using a bunch of ice and the other half of the week I was just using a bunch of heroin and benzos and the whole time I had this kind of underlying underlying methadone holding me the whole time and I was kind of back in the same position that I was in the first place Mm, and mm, mm, completely mm. unable to stop using and my life was just absolutely going nowhere I was just treading water there was no way that I was going to get out of that job there was no way that I was going to progress in that job and then eventually some things went down at work and um like my registration became under question so I had to like you know I was like Mm, mm. I had to stop using yeah (laughs) I'm incredibly privileged, though. Like, I'm white, I'm middle class, I, my family has money, do you know what I mean? Like, that, it worked for me in terms, that, in terms of being able to get off the street in that context, but I had somewhere to go, you know? Um, yeah. So that was really lucky for me, and I don't think that that's necessarily everybody's experience. Yes. Um, and I... I would say that the doctors who prescribe methadone, their intention when they give you methadone is that you don't use on top of the methadone. Yeah. <laughs> like, they don't, But that's, you know... You know that's, like, it's completely impractical. That's got nothing like, to do with them in a lot yeah. of ways, though, right? I yeah. mean, you know, you're the you're the expert in what's right for you at that point in time. What would they know about having a heroin addiction? Well, yeah, that's completely true. And, I mean, I think that the thing is, like, they will... in Like, the idea is with methadone is that they will increase your methadone until you don't feel like you need to have any more heroin. But when you're... Like, the, I wasn't taking heroin to satisfy my dopamine receptors or my opiate receptors. I was taking heroin to blow my brain out. And so... Yeah, and to when survive. I, and yeah, like, exactly. You know, and so when I... Even when I did get to the amount of methadone that stopped me from needing to use heroin, I still wasn't getting high. And the point for me was getting high. So I just started using ice and alcohol. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> I wanted to get high. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, yeah. I just ended up using more heroin and more ice yeah. and more of everything. And it did. It did work. It did work in that initial period of time. But yeah. um, ultimately... Oh, yes. Because of the way that I... Um, because of the way that I use, I just, I just spiraled back down to where I was before. Um, I'm always so interested to hear like the stories around kind of like the methamphetamine with the work and kind of like how it was like you know just going and like getting super super high on ice for like you know ha- however many days and then managing at work and then kind of like that whole cycle is like completely fascinating because you know like a lot of the time when you're talking about methadone and stuff it's got to do with like you know managing heroin but the thing is is that like when when you're used to having that in your life like you turn to the next alternative you know I think what ended up happening was I had some problems with work. I lost my registration and um, I ne- they, I needed to be able to pass drug tests, basically. And um, so I went to a private rehab, basically with the intention of doing three months of total abstinence so that I could pass the drug tests and then um, kind of dusting everything off, picking up my old life, kind of getting my family off my back, getting work off my back, getting everything kind of back to lowering my tolerance a little bit, you know, that would have been nice. And then going back and just kind of, you know, using once a week and just not getting an opiate habit because I'd also managed to get off methadone. In the process of getting off drugs, I did five weeks in a private psych ward where they just 
detoxed me from methadone. It was the most brutal six weeks of my life. Um, it was completely horrendous. And then I did three months in a private rehab, and that was um, really lucky that I was able to do that. Like, I was really, really fortunate to have the resources and to have the social capital because my family were the people that kind of got me into that. So that was really lucky, and it's not everyone's story. Yeah. talk about private is there any reason you went private over public uh yeah because um you can get in straight away so i found that when i was trying to come off codeine they would they basically just refused to treat me because i was taking like i was only I was taking like five pounds a day which is not that much in the scheme of things and if you um convert that to a suboxone dose it's like 0.2 mm. so i didn't want to go on to suboxone i just yeah. wanted to taper off and my doctor was quite happy to do that for me but the public detox just wouldn't let me they were just like no there was, go on suboxone there was only one private psych ward that would detox me from methadone nowhere else would do it yeah they, they were like unless you have been totally abstinent from all drugs for a significant amount of time the reason that it's working is because you're on methadone the methadone is working they just weren't willing to do it yeah and the place that i went to was willing to take me because i was willing to pay them yeah yeah because that would have been and it was like um, a really long wait for a rehab like i never went to rehab i ended up going doing it myself so I found a really great withdrawal nurse um, eventually mm. and they just helped me. He just, like, prescribed me the codeine taper down until, well, without paracetamol, so I wasn't consuming a lot of paracetamol. And then I just tapered off and then I just checked in with him regularly um, and it was such a low dose. But in terms of abstinence, it's funny, you're completely right. Like, I always try to tell myself that, oh, maybe I could do it on the weekend. You can't. You can't do it can't, on the weekend. Right? <laughs> like, it never works. Well, and, you know, I gave, I gave it a red-hot go. <laughs> Like, I gave it a red-hot go. Like, I never wanted to do... To like, this rehab that I was in, it was 12-step rehab. You know, it was therapeutic community. Like, it was actually very good. But um, they would bang on about how, you know, if you're an addict, you can't use drugs because you're an addict and you'll just blow out and you can't control yourself and, you know, your brain's fucked and you're just... Like, that's just how it's going to be. And I was like, mm, that kind of sounds like a you problem because, you know, you're a bit of a mong and, like, yeah. you know, like, I feel like I could probably just have a couple of drinks and maybe have a shot on of an evening on a Saturday and that would actually be very beautiful and fine. And so I really did try to do that. And every time, like, as soon as I came out, I relapsed on ice and it was two weeks, three weeks before I was just in the gutter again. Like... But I think that's a really valid criticism, though, and what you hear a lot of the times with the 12-step program is that it takes away or it can kind of, like, you know, disempower people or imply that they don't have any, like, autonomy, they don't have any self, you know, self-efficacy anymore, like they have to give themselves away to a higher power and things like that. So I'm not surprised that you kind of, like, you know, were a little bit resistant to that idea, to be honest. Like, completely resistant to mm. that idea. And, you know, it took me a year of going back to rehab and then leaving and trying to use and then going back to rehab and leaving and trying to use mm. and just doing it over and over. I tried it with ice, burned out really quickly. Tried it with heroin, took a little bit longer, but burned out again. Just ended up with a habit, like, you know, ended up losing the job, like, just ended up, you know, completely unmanageable really, really quickly until eventually I came to this place where I was like, oh, maybe, 
maybe I'll just have to try doing abstinence and I'll do it for one year. <laughs> and that was when I really threw myself into NA because I had never, like I'd been going, but I hadn't really accepted the narrative. And I didn't really, I mean, I didn't like it. I didn't like participating with it. It's not a fun thing to participate with. Um, but at that point, I just, I got to this point where I, I tried everything and I was like, okay, well, the one thing that I haven't tried is total abstinence. And these people are offering me a way of doing total abstinence. So, you know, yeah. why not? And honestly, once I really jumped on board and really threw myself into the program and did all of the things that they suggested that I do and really got amongst it, like, it, it actually has completely changed my life. Like, I, you know, do have my registration back. I do live in an apartment now. Like, I do, like, I have gotten back all of the things that I lost throughout my addiction, all of my own accord, through doing NA. Yeah. Like, it is the thing that has saved me. It makes sense that you would do abstinence after a period of extreme vulnerability. Like anyone, I think that it is a bit naive to assume that you can go from like, you know, because um, substance addiction or substance dependence isn't just, a, a, like that's not all you're suffering. Like it's, it's usually a, a complex range of things like mental health, your, fa your family life or your work life is broken down. So you're not really going to go from detoxing from the drug and, you know, being abstinent in rehab to being like, oh, I can recreationally use everything I want now. Like yeah. it's not going to happen. Yeah. Like you need at least, like I think, a good 12 months of abstinence you know, and I think that if we're using like harm reduction frameworks or abstinence frameworks, it would be dogmatic to just lie down one as the be all end all. I think that maybe it's a good combination of the both. And I think that it's reasonable to assume that if you've just come out of a period of, you know, of being, of struggling, yeah. that you should probably have a period of abstinence. And I discovered that myself. Yeah. Um, it was just, yeah, it was just a, complex cycle of like thinking that I could have a couple like you know um, an oxy on the weekend and that would be fine but it doesn't work like that because as soon as you go like between one and three days that's it you're back on yeah <laughs> like, right? it's just like yeah. three days is all it takes and that's it you're on again absolutely like, you know and when you've had such a big like opiate habit in the past yeah. it just takes nothing takes yeah. nothing before you just even if it's psychological that craving for it yeah. that experience of being in withdrawal yeah <laughs> like, I found that yeah. like it, I'd get um like psychosomatic withdrawal symptoms totally. so yeah like headaches muscle aches absolutely and I wouldn't have even Panic. had anything <laughs> yeah and it, my body's just convinced me that I'm in withdrawal still even though I wasn't but I would have to use opioids to to make like to treat the yeah. The withdrawals, which were completely psychological. Yeah. So, yeah, it was bizarre. Absolutely. Opioids are a weird, weird drug. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've withdrawn from other drugs like cannabis and ice yeah. and stuff, and nothing, I don't know, I think opioids are a weird, weird they, beast. Yeah, I definitely yeah. agree. Yeah. Although, I don't know, I, I think that you're absolutely right in terms of um, harm reduction. I don't think that harm reduction and total abstinence need to necessarily be mutually, mutually exclusive. I don't think that one is necessarily the right way for everyone, but I do... My experience with NA particularly is that the, the people that it works for and the people um, that, I guess, are suited to total abstinence are the type of user that do blow out really quickly after just one or two yeah. experiences of taking Like they lose the control kind of thing. Like it's yeah. a real kind of like, you Absolutely. Know. And yeah. I know I know a number of people who have had years and years and years of, of total abstinence and they've gone, okay, I've done that. Like that 
was good, that uh, probably better yeah, now, and they've box. left so that they could kind of go and drink like a normal person and socially drink. And sometimes it happens quickly and sometimes it happens slowly, but so many people that I know after years of abstinence really have... Um, they've tried to go back to it and it hasn't really worked out for them and they've ended up back in NA. Um, and I think that it's that this particular model, like the 12-step the model, is useful for that type of user. Um, yeah. And I don't think that everyone is that type of user. Like, well, I don't yeah, think that everyone yeah. is that type of user. Yeah. Um, if you've had, like, long-term entrenched substance use, so I found, like, with my case, I went from um, using quite heavily as a teenager and yeah. I recovered and then I had, like, a really, you know, well, a reasonably okay 20s. Like, I did drink in the sense that, you know, how university students drink and it's, yeah. it's seen, as, like, seen as normal, but it's yeah. not really normal. Yeah, like, yeah, <laughs> you know, so I drank in that way. Yeah. Um, but I didn't really see myself as having much of a problem until I, you know, had this great stressor that came on to my life, like my dad got cancer and I had to go to court. And then it, it was so easy for my brain to take the path of least resistance, which is just using just drugs. Use. Like that's, yeah. So I think that you have to be very hyper vigilant. And if you're already um, taking drugs and drinking um, as a in a recreational way, it's like one step removed. Like if stress is going to come into your life, to be very easily fall off the wagon again. Absolutely. So I can see the value in abstinence-based approaches. Like if you know that it's very easy for you to go that path, particularly like if work starts getting stressful or something happens in your life, that it might be better to keep that at a distance, you know? Yeah. And I think also, like for myself, um, I was basically a daily drug user for 16, 17 years and it wasn't always heroin, it wasn't always ice, it was, but it was I was always on something um, for, for 16 or 17 years. And it's funny because I've been abstinent from drugs for multiple years now, but... When I think about having a drink, I'm like, well, I could have a drink or I could just have a beautiful hit of heroin. <laughs> like, like it's immediately. And then I'm like, I could use once a week. Well, twice. Like it really would be twice. Like, it, like as soon as I even start thinking about it, yeah. it's like, how could I do this the most? Yeah. <laughs> so I do just stay away from yeah. it these days is kind of what has been working for me. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio in Psychedelia. My name's Chloe, and you've been listening to Sarah and Frank, who are both talking about mandatory rehab as well as the 12-step program and NA. Um, with the content that we're delivering today, um, it does have some sensitive conversations and some sensitive topics, so things around drugs, addiction, sex work, um, heavy language... And Sarah's going to talk now um, a little bit more about mandatory rehab. There's a lot of resistance towards um, youth mandatory rehab from, um, I guess, like a harm reduction civil liberties argument in the sense that we're kind of seeing this issue through the paradigm of the war on drugs and we're seeing it in the paradigm of the state is being authoritarian and making cultural um, calls on what is acceptable when it comes to drug use and, um, you know, and it, it's further marginalising people who use drugs. Um, and I think that perhaps that is a little bit haste because it's so easy to to flick into that paradigm because it's what we're used to it's what we use all the time mm. but when it comes to young people i think that it's a little bit different so young people under 18 um they 
don't exist in the same world that adults do in many ways. They do and they don't. They, you know, um, the state demands that they go to school, for example. There are heaps of things that we kind of enforce on young people that we don't enforce on adults. Um, and it's because of their right to safety and, um, you know, and pr- protecting their well-being. And we have a social responsibility towards young people that we don't... Well, you know, maybe we should have it more towards adults, but we don't have it. You know, adults are kind of like, you can make your own decisions, you can mess up your life if you want to, you can go and die. Like, that's on you. Um, but whereas when it comes to young people, we kind of take a more active role mm. in... You know, because it's their formative years. It's what's going to really set them up for the rest of their lives. And um, that's where you really start that entrenched drug use kind of patterns of coping, distress intolerance and all the, the, you know, muck that you, you know, just you kind of deal with for the rest of your life and you're still adult, you know, you're always trying to figure out. So how much choice would you say... And, like, I know your story and stuff, so I'm just going to ask this one question. Um, Did you have in becoming dependent on substances when you were a minor? Yeah, because that's a... a, Well, I don't think many people have much choice anyway, (laughs) like, across the board. Um, But I would say... I would reframe it as how much power did I have to deal with substance um, dependence as a minor compared to today. So I have a lot more power in my arsenal if I... A relapse into substance use, which I have, um, and I was able to deal with it far more efficiently and to deal with my living situation and all that kind of stuff uh, because I just have a lot more power as an adult. But as a young person, I just did not have that power whatsoever. I had no um, idea how to look after my own best interest. I didn't really have much of an idea about what was harmful substance use and what wasn't. So I remember being in detox and they asked me if I wanted to go to, I think it was Birabi, like to rehab. And I said no, because I just didn't think that my issues were bad enough. Like I didn't deserve to be there. Like, And I thought that about detox too. Like I remember going and knocking on the door thinking, oh, they're not going to let me go because I'm just addicted to cannabis. Like, and I only use speed occasionally. And, you know, I'm like a 16, 17 year old in a like horribly violent household and substance abusing. And I just didn't think I was bad enough to have services. So young people don't really, it's really hard to understand where, like what is normal, particularly Mm. if you've grown up around that. Like I grew up around pretty severe drug use. So I was used to seeing people far like far worse than me. So it was really hard to understand what my life should have been or what I had the right to. Like I didn't understand like my right to safety, my right to protection. Like I should have been in child protective services from 14, but I wasn't. So there was so much going on for me that just wasn't being addressed. And then I was being exploited. I was being fed a lot of different drugs, um, you know, that you know, this man that was abusing me um, who had swooped in as soon as my parents left, he knew full well that when I recovered from one substance, he needed to get me onto another one because it was like a control thing. So it's very hard for a, a teenage girl to, like, figure out what to do in that situation with no family, no friend group. So in uh, that's why I kind of support mandatory rehab. I do mm. wish that DHS had come and like just taken me away and just put me somewhere and yeah. just locked me in there for a while and yeah. gave me therapy. Like yeah. it would have just been like really beneficial. Yeah. And I think you'd be hard pressed to find, because I, you know, a lot of people would argue on, oh, well, there needs to be more service provision. You just weren't getting enough service provision. But maybe that's the case. Maybe it isn't. I don't know. Like I was going to detox a lot. I was um, 
given like youth housing so I went to like some youth hostels and some refuges and I had my um, support worker Warren but it just wasn't enough like I wasn't able to stay at the refuges I became very anxious and but what do you even mean by you know I wish DHS came in and swooped in and you know took me away like what 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 do you mean well yeah I just think that they should have identified that I was like at risk um and that they would have, you know, like child protection. It's interesting because child protection does come in and take young people. Mm. So we do have, like, they don't take them, like, steal them, but, like, they, we do have, like, secure welfare. So young people who are identified at risk, like, particularly young girls um, that may be in relationships with older men and um, using ice and whatnot, um, DHS has the power to go to the court and apply through child protection to take that young person and put them into secure welfare yeah. for their own safety. So we already do that. Um, that's for 21 days, and then they can apply for a further 28 days, I believe. Okay. Um, but there's no real intervention in that secure welfare facility. Mm. I think they'll test, they'll STD test them. Yeah. They'll. Um, maybe do like a mental health plan I think but not to the extent that you would get in a rehab facility Um, you know like and it's just a revolving door like they see the same young people in and out of secure welfare like 40 times like in the year and they're not getting appropriate interventions they're just coming in for their 20 day stint or their 40 day stint and they're being kind of shipped off again so so would it kind of be as though like you would suggest that if you could have like a mandatory rehab for young people who are at risk it would almost be like an addendum to dhs and child protection so it would just be like an alternative service yeah it would be um an alternative service for secure welfare which isn't i don't believe is really helping um and also for juvenile um, detention. So if young people are going, they're facing juvie, um, you know, the the courts do at the moment some, you know, strongly suggest to young people, they might say, look, I'm going to give you, let you out on bail, but you have to see an AOD counsellor, you have to do this and that. And for whatever reason, <coughs> the young person, usually because their lives are chaotic and they have no way of getting themselves up and wherever yeah, to like the no AOD council. Yeah, like, like it's yeah. very difficult. Where's the support? Like, yeah, and even yeah. the workers, like outreach workers may struggle to keep um, con- like communication with that young mm. person or, you know, because um, they're just going through hell, you know, or they'd yeah. be homeless or Their whatever. Phones, yeah, no, like no money. Yeah, exactly. So um, it would be, so if that young person then breached bail, they'd just go to juvie. So instead of juvie, a rehab would be, like mandatory rehab makes it sound more authoritarian and punitive than I think it actually is. Um, It is, like, the one that's being proposed in South Australia does seem punitive to me. There's one being proposed there, which is, you know, they want 12 months. They've basically put no caveats in. They've, like, just been like, no, let's just lock them up for 12 months, like, which is really horrible. All the... um, kind of like you services and that and SA just don't like it they're like no okay um but the one in Victoria is a lot different and they kind of don't want like you know 12 months is too long like maybe four months or three months and you've got youth services on the steering committee you've got Windana on the steering committee um so there's a lot of involvement from the sector in doing it Mm. so yeah I, I would call it like a therapeutic care a secure therapeutic care home but I don't want to like yeah. be caught up in semantics I just want to like it shouldn't be punitive and that's yeah. the thing like that's the hard thing like things can sound good on paper but what they actually you know in practice is a completely different thing yeah I mean that's like a you know I hesitate about it because I've never seen it really work anywhere yeah. oh well 
I say that, but Jennifer Bowles, who is the one that's proposing this, she went to Europe and had a look at their therapeutic care homes. And judging from the reports from her anyway, it looks quite positive. But in terms of Australia and, you know, the, like, mandatory, um, like, community care orders from the mental health service, like, I've never seen, from my perspective anyway, anyone go involuntary in a psych ward and come out better than when they went in. Like, well, what would be the benefits then, like, yeah. in your mind? Like, why do, you, why do you support it? I support it if it's implemented ethically. So that's the problem. I think that I think the question is, shouldn't be, sh- should we or shouldn't we? I think that the question is, can it be implemented ethically? Because... Like how? Yeah, like yeah. how. Instead of just being like, oh, it's wrong or right, like I think that's getting caught up on the wrong kind of framing. So I think that, yes, it can be really good if it was implemented ethically. So the question now is how can it be implemented ethically? What can we do to ensure that young people's rights are being respected? Mm. What can we do to ensure that there is um, transparency in the process? What can we do to ensure that consumers are then able to um, participate within that treatment service as well, that they can give feedback, that they mm. have, that they're empowered to give feedback. You know? Yeah, so I think that that's... And I feel positive about it because of who's on the steering committee. Um, Indigenous... There's an Indigenous organisation in Victoria, and I, the, na- like the acronym always escapes me, and I can never remember. They're on the steering committee, and I was really happy about that because Indigenous being incarcerated against their will is like a big problem in this country and I think that they should be one of the worst problems yeah exactly so they end problem and it will be marginalized kids that Mm. get caught first like in this in this program they're the ones like if if we look at it as a safety net hopefully it's a safety net they'll be the ones that are in the net straight away it'll probably be like one of the v's like that show or vaca yeah yeah it's one of those i I feel like it starts with a h i love that we don't know that because we don't need to know that because we're not indigenous i know that's why it makes me feel bad i'm like oh (laughs) i don't have much dealings with the Mm. indigenous organization but um i was listening to there's a good program on the Lord Report with Jennifer Bowles and she was talking about it. You know, she was um, also, like, talking with... El- I love the fact that she went straight to the elders and also to the um, Commissioner for Indigenous People, I think, and the Children's Commissioner. So she went straight to them first. Mm. And I think that made me feel more, um, I guess... In, like, Comfortable. Off, yeah, with how it was being implemented. Unfortunately, a lot of people have been turned against it because the Liberals did adopt it in the state. So the state Liberals... And, you know, as soon as the state Liberals... Like, if the state Liberals are saying mandatory rehab, you straight... Like, I I was like, no. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm like, yeah. Like, as soon as I heard it from their mouth, I was like, no. <laughs> like, yeah. But when I looked into it more deeply... Um, Jennifer Bowles isn't a liberal, as I know. She was just a children's court magistrate, and her research and her, um, I guess, where she's coming from, I think, is a respectable place and it's a genuine place. So mm. I feel a lot more comfortable. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's something that we need to think about seriously because what's the alternative at the moment? Like, are we just going to wait until? All the services in Victoria are like absolutely 100% funded in a way that is like completely yeah. like addressing all the gaps. 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. QR Code is an LGBTIQA health podcast made by and for queers. Across eight episodes, we engage with our communities discussing diverse and intersecting topics. In our first episode, 
we speak about the impact of structural factors on queer mental health. Join us this Friday the 26th of April at 4.30pm. QR Code is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR and distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcast Association of Australia. To find out more, follow us on Facebook at QR Code, funded by the City of Yarra. You're listening to 3CR Radio. For you, Frank, like, is there anything that could have helped early? Like, we're talking about, you know, youth and young people. Like, is there anything that could have helped or, you know, directed things in a different way, like, as an early intervention that would have actually done anything, you know, positive for you? It's a really hard question because, like, for me, like, I wanted to use. Like, my whole identity was built around using. My whole life was about using. And um, I didn't want to stop using. Like, I never wanted to stop using. I just kind of wanted to stop the chaos that was happening around using. And, um, you know, it wasn't until... It wasn't until I was in my 30s that I kind of accepted that, like, they kind of came hand in hand with each other, you know? And, I mean, I definitely think that... um, I definitely think that a lot of the kind of stigma and a lot of the attitudes that come from the community and from the workplace and from the people around me, like, if if there was kind of systemic change in which people didn't view me like a piece of shit because I was a heroin addict and I was on the methadone program, it probably would have... Um, it probably would have helped for me to, um, I don't know, to like, to feel like I was able to participate in the community more, um, because I felt like I was so different and I felt like I was so kind of marginalized as a queer person, as a sex worker, as a heroin addict anyway, um, that there was not really any kind of incentive for me to try and, you know, get a job and, you know, Mm. a husband and, you know, like buy some diamonds. Like, I don't fucking know. Do you know what I mean? Like, Mm. it wasn't really a thing, but that kind of systemic change, like, it's not, it's not really like an organisational intervention that could have occurred. Like, it was like a whole cultural consciousness that needed to not exist for it to, for it to be practical. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's just really interesting hearing you say that though, because like, I know you and you're so strong. Like, no matter what, like, it doesn't matter what the environment is. Do you know what I mean? Like, you're the sort of person that's going to be you no matter what and basically, like, actually will, like, tell everyone else to, like, get out of your way, like, and not be an oppressive force on you. So to actually hear that, that, you know, like, we're still experiencing things in terms of being, uh, like, from a marginalised group just goes to show how strong, like, these sorts of you know, systems are in terms of making people feel small. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that part of... I mean, that's kind of been a blessing and a curse because part of the way that I was able to own the fact that I was queer and own the fact that I was, you know, a needle user and, you know, a sex worker and all of those things was by kind of um, taking on that identity and being anti-authority and being anti-establishment and being anti-social. And part of that meant that... I didn't want to participate necessarily in the workforce. I didn't want to be, you know, getting on the train at nine o'clock in the morning. I thought that that was disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) And I, like, I wasn't really too worried about things like paying rent on time. Like those weren't kind of, like part of my identity was really about not doing those things. Mm. Um, So that's so my whole community that I grew up in, because you do become extremely resentful of what I would call like legitimate society or mainstream society. Absolutely. Do you like, because the police used to raid our house all the time and, you know, you'd get, 
um, you'd walk into a shop and be watched constantly. constantly. Like, you don't you don't belong in the same society there, and you just become really resentful at them. Like at, I would steal things, and I would just be like, I don't give don't a give shit. a fuck. Yeah. yeah, like fuck you, I'm taking your shit. Like you and don't care about me. So absolutely, and it was never <laughs> you know? more apparent to me than when I was getting methadone from the methadone clinic because it was just a pharmacy and you know people would go to buy their you know like the nice old lady would come and get her like a script of amoxicillin or whatever and I'd be there waiting for methadone and the way that the staff treated us compared to the way they treated their other customers it was just so visible it was so tangible and um, you know the way that my job um, handled the fact that I was a you know a drug user was incredibly punitive, and they actually they were really kind of upfront about that. They were like, "We're dealing with this not in any kind of a therapeutic way. We don't really care about therapy. We don't really care about how well you are. We just care about protecting the public from you." So, and that was like how they, that was, and they were really upfront about that, you know, and I was kind of like, okay, like, great. And like, it because <laughs> it, it even happens. So, like, I was, as a child, obviously not a drug user, but my dad was. So I wasn't allowed to play with the middle class kids. Mm. <laughs> like, I just yeah. that they knew that I was, somehow they just knew Bad that apple. my, like, yeah, that my yeah. dad, like, smoked a lot of pox. He looked like a hippie. Like, he yeah. was, like, the long hair, the long beard. Like, the, he plays a harmonica. Like, he was, you know, like, a full hippie. Yeah. I, like, I don't know. Like, some people just scream, I smoke weed. Like, <laughs> that's what he looked like. And I was, yeah, wasn't allowed to play with the other kids, like, the middle class kids at school. And what that meant was I had out with the bad crowd, whatever the bad crowd is, was where I belonged because I wasn't allowed into the society that everyone else was privy to. Well, and it's funny because, you know, I was, you know, queer and I was genderqueer and we didn't really have any discourse around that back then. There was not really any language for what was going on. But, you know, the way that I dressed and the way that I presented was, you know, like it was effeminate, it was androgynous, and I didn't um, fit in with any of the people that I went to school with. And it was funny because when I found cannabis, I found this crew of people that would accept me because I could keep up with them smoking bongs, you know? <laughs> like, it was... They were like, well, you know, he's a freak and he's wearing fishnets, but he knows how to rip a party cone, so he's kind of okay, you know? Yeah, like, legitimately. Like, <laughs> and yeah. so that was kind of how I fell into it. And it was the same thing when I was working as a sex worker. I was hanging out with these, like, you know, like criminals <laughs> and like I felt like I was being I felt like they had a level of um I don't know if it's necessarily respect but I was acceptable in their community in a way that I wasn't in any other community and even though I'm white and I come from a middle class family being queer was really the thing and particularly being as visibly queer as I was and am like and being genderqueer as well was like it was just not a thing in the yeah, 90s. Yeah, you wouldn't have you know? fit into any kind of mainstream yeah. like, stream of anything, you know. Whereas the drug users, they accepted me, you know, mm. like they really, really did. They didn't give a fuck as long as I could use drugs as well as they could, you know, as long as I could get them drugs, particularly working <laughs> in the sex industry. If you can get them drugs, you've got friends. That's how like, I got friends was because I, my dad smoked pot. Yeah. I could get pot. Yeah. Friends. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So in terms of your question, which was, was there any early intervention that would have been a thing? Like, I just kind of think no. Yeah. Like, I tried to... I, I, I did a... Well, it wasn't about that. It yeah. wasn't about intervention. It was about, you know, who you wanted to be or, like, you know, basically finding a place where, you know, there's 
you know, somewhere to belong. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Like. Well, that's what I think is most important because I yeah grew up always feeling like I was on the outside, and that's why I did become very um, vulnerable to exploitative people. Um, so because I had no community, like no one was looking mm. after me. Nobody gave a shit. Like uh, the cops didn't care. Like right. Well, back then they didn't. Uh, later on they did. But that's because I kind of got social capital. That I don't yeah. know. You do you know what I mean? Like, and yeah. you, made a, you made a decision like within yeah. yourself that this is something that I want to fight for yeah. and I'm going to like actually like Although sometimes I wonder because like go to you and yeah. ask for your help. When like, I charged the guy I had become university educated so I had kind of shifted into a different, into a class, different class of people so I don't know you know but the detective was lo- like lovely she's a lovely person but back then you know the cops didn't care nobody cared I didn't belong in the same community but I think that you like I think that if we go into it with the goal of being like we have to just perfect this young person. They're going to come out and they're going to, their life's going to be perfect. They're not going to use drugs. They're just going to like become grade A students and that's the wrong approach and I don't think that's ever going to happen. What I think was the most important for me is feeling like there was a community mm. that cared about me and I think that one of these like mandatory rehab things is it's about trying to tie young people in with a community that's Broader, even if it's like the AOD support network community, and you know, even that alone, even if they leave rehab and start using again, if they've got more connections than they did before they went in, then that's a good thing. Like, and that's what well, I think is really important. And it's funny, you know, because one of the adages that they say in NA a lot is that. Um, connection is the opposite of addiction. And that's one of the things that's been so helpful for me doing NA is that you're kind of initiated by the fact that you walked in the door in the first place. Like, it is really heavy on um, embracing the newcomer. It is really heavily community-oriented. It's really strongly designed to be about being in connection with people and being able to be vulnerable with people and being able to find your people and be in community and be really strongly connected. And um, so many people have been through the same kind of things that I've been through. And it's funny because even people that have totally different stories, I can still connect with them because we have the same internal experience of being in our bodies, that like that kind of experience of needing to not be sober because it's intolerable, you know, like that real discomfort being in your body. And even when they don't share the same story as me, I can connect with them on on that level. And um, it really does bridge... It kind of bridges worlds because there's people that I'm friends with there. Like, I mean, I'm not really a huge fan of of straight white men. Like, sorry. (laughs) I know you're not really allowed to say it, but, like, I I try not to talk to them too much because they tend to kind of either hate me or piss me off or both. Yeah. But, you know, like, I... I'm straight. Right. Pardon the pun. Like, anyway, keep... But, you know, like, some of my best friends are straight white men. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, you know, like, I... um, I have been able, really, in the context of doing NA, to work through a lot of the kind of social isolation that I had experienced out in the community through the fact that everyone's kind of come together with this um, common solution, you know? Look, I actually hate straight white men. I'm really sorry, <laughs> but, like, I can't stand them. <laughs> mm, it's you okay, know? we're going to get through this. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, yeah, so that's a whole thing. Yeah. Um, but it's like, it's like peer support. 
you know, it like it sounds support. like peer it's, support. It's peer support. Absolutely. Um, and, and like drug using communities are really, really good at that because it's like the holistic thing. We talk about people's, you know, general health, like goals, all sorts of things. Like, and it generally is non judgmental in its nature. And I don't know why. I don't know if it's because it's intentionally outside of the community for the reasons, you know, how you can develop such safe spaces like that. But it's kind of just really natural. Like it just happens. Mm. Um, you know, I like most of my friends are drug users like I'm a massive drug user like mm. you know whatever mm. um and I wonder I really wonder what 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 that's about you know I, I, yeah I find it really hard this is probably I don't know, always thought maybe it's just on me but I find it really difficult to be friends with people who don't use drugs or haven't used drugs why would you want to I don't know you know like I don't they're like another species like um my partner that he used like he was a previous drug user he used to make like heaps of bongs when he was young but now he doesn't and it's been like 20 years and now when he's stressed out he goes for a walk he likes it. I just find that real. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, that's all you do. And he just doesn't do anything else. Like, he doesn't really drink or, like, smoke cigarettes or he just goes for a nice walk and that's but it. That's <laughs> People change. Yeah. Like, even if that was what you wanted at one point in time, like, you can move on to, like, like exercise. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I love exercise. Like, give me exercise. I need to love like, exercise. Oh. <laughs> like, I know that they're, like, the good things to do. Like, yeah, because he used to be a drug user, but now he's not. And obviously he's developed those good, the better skills that I'm still like, oh, like, okay, I'll go. Like, I don't see how walking is going to help, but I will <laughs> go. Like, yeah. walking is boring. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Although I still really, like, now that I do abstinence and I don't, you know, really have anything, I still do go for things that are really altered state of consciousness inducing you know like I'm a really big fan of intense exercise for many hours I do a lot of yoga like I do all like all of the things that I can find that yeah, will, like drugs that but are like drugs, drugs but <laughs> yeah. not drugs yeah. you know like and sometimes they can be really extreme yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I definitely can get addicted to things that aren't drugs yeah. <laughs> I have addictive behaviours it's problematic sometimes. yeah I want to I want to become a gym junkie like I want that yeah. to be my thing yeah, yeah. absolutely <laughs> absolutely yeah that'd be really good yeah. um is there anything that you'd like to chuck in there nick no oh, nick some <laughs> nick's just not even near a microphone which is <laughs> not, not that common um cool well is there anything that you'd like to say to finish off there yeah actually i'll just like just going back to that point that we we're talking about how like i don't know anyone that uses drugs but i think that is because you need to have a sense of community and society and you never like most people who use drugs because of the war on drugs yeah. have been excommunicated from society like we're just not allowed in like Absolutely. we're just not allowed to be a part of it so that's why i think that um a lot of aod peer support like it is rebuilding a community among ourselves where it's like well screw you we'll build our own like and that's yeah. what it's become about and that's like with the mandatory rehab thing I would like to see it being an alternative community for young people it may not cure them of everything but I think that it's important that they have a community yeah absolutely. and some of them need to be drag creaking and screaming into that community but like I would have benefited from it I wouldn't have I would have hated it if you'd taken me there I would have been like no I don't want to go yeah um uh, we would have just been indignant at the principle of it. Yeah. Like, you know, like, how dare you, my rights. But it would have been really good for me. And I think that um, building community, I think, is always, like, and that's, you know, it gets harped on a lot of, in the AOD section. And I think, because for good reason, like, I think it's probably one of the most important aspects of recovery. So, yeah, that's, yeah. that's all I wanted to add. Yeah. What about you, Frank? Uh, I don't know. I just, I guess, um, I know that, like total abstinence and I know that NA sort of gets a bad rap in um, a lot of the harm men communities but I think that probably 
focusing on the fact that it's total abstinence and focusing on um, the kind of, you know, honestly problematic political realities of NA, um, it, it detracts from how incredibly powerful the program itself actually is. Um, and... I mean, it's kind of been challenging me, challenging for me to ignore a lot of the really problematic elements of it. Um, but I do, because ultimately, like, it's really changed my life and it's been the thing that has been able to kind of provide me with recovery in a way that no other avenue has been successful at doing. And so that's why I will always kind of advocate for it, because um, for a particular type of user and a particular type of use, um, it's a really good solution Mm. and it's just we're so lucky and like thank you for coming on and sharing like you know your experiences because we don't we're not very good at talking about it you know Mm. we're not very good at celebrating the fact that the people who use drugs in you know in our society or in Melbourne you know is really large and diverse Mm. and what works for some somebody doesn't work for somebody else and even though we've got a whole lot of like amazing kind of um you know like celebrations in terms of our drug laws at the moment and we're you know moving forward with pill testing and all these sorts of things the reality is that you know that's that's for one demographic of the community and to be honest it's for a lot of middle class uni students you know um which is great and it's fantastic but when you think about stereotypes like the stereotypes of drug users can you think of a stereotype like an actual like one that the whole society adopts that's negative about party drug use because i actually can't but i can think of another one like a negative one about drinking i can think of a really you know negative one about heroin use ice use you know but i can't, can't really think of like a really you know like sort of like i don't know like just visceral one which is absolutely like pushing the thumb down on someone who goes to a, a festival <laughs> like <laughs> i don't know that that's just, i don't know so yeah um Thank you both for um, for coming onto the radio today, and yeah, I think that's it. You've been listening to Sarah and Frank talking about NA and mandatory rehab for young people. To find a local NA group or Narcotics Anonymous, visit navic.net.au/meetings. If you've enjoyed what you heard today, tune in to Living Free on 3CR Thursdays at 1pm. Special thanks to producers and content contributors this afternoon, Kodiak Kid and production by Monkey Mark. Thanks to Sarah and Frank for their conversations and Gabby for Monday night's Midnight Mass on 3CR doing technical production. This is In Psychedelia. Comments, complaints or contributions are welcome. Jump on the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au and head to the Encyclopedia program page. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter or send us an email. Encyclopedia does not condone or condemn people who use drugs for their choices. Our aim is to present the diverse intersections of psychoactive drugs and society. If you are concerned about your own drug use or a friend's drug use, DirectLine provides a free and confidential counselling service 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-800-888-236. In Psychedelia, we'll be back on 3CR from 2pm next Sunday.
This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear in Psychedelia live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.